Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We have uh, reading week next week, so that's always a great opportunity to catch up on research work and writing projects, but I wanted to wish you a happy anniversary. You've been married for 30 years. Yes, this is exactly the day of our marriage 30 years ago in what would be sunny San Diego, but it rained a lot that week. Uh, A seven-year drought ended the week of our, our wedding, so our beautiful outdoor wedding became a boring ballroom with no decorations wedding, but we had a good time anyway. We had way too much food, but then the graduate students there were able to partake of our food since we got married while I was in grad school. Mm, But I I always thought that rain on your wedding day was really good luck. I am firmly convinced that people are told that to make them feel better after (laughs) their wedding plans have been trashed by the weather. But we've lasted 30 years, so maybe it was good luck. We certainly had a good good weather the next week when we were in Hawaii for our, our honeymoon. So I guess it was good luck. And we're going to celebrate not this week, but next week, because next week is your reading period and our reading period. That means it's winter break. I'm going to spend it out west, seeing Western alienation up close in Vancouver. I guess that's, they're not really that alienated, but, and then some skiing at Whistler. I'm really looking forward to that. We're looking forward to getting out of occupied Ottawa, even though it hasn't really affected affected us directly. I got to tell you, living in this town at this moment in time has created a, a new level of stress on top of the old pandemic stress that just constantly weighs. It's been so angering, so frustrating to watch, you know, nothing get done in town that, you know, the mayor has appeased the occupiers by letting them have more of main, the main street in front of a parliament building in exchange for giving, you know, I'm giving up a little bit of uh, residential territory, but it's just been a, a really, really maddening couple of weeks. I, I guess from Kingston, it's not quite as annoying to you. No, I can't quite hear the honking from here. <laughs> there was a, a counter protest, though, in Kingston. So we had a little bit of, of the action. But no, it's mostly hearing from friends and colleagues who live in Ottawa or then just tracking the news because you know, it's across Canada that, that we're hearing news from the trucker convoy, but it's also become internationalized. There have been similar protests planned from France to New Zealand, and then later on in March in the United States. So what do you make of this spreading of the trucker convoy model? Well, the good news is what's spreading is the counter protests, because I had some colleagues of mine who are actually blocking the people who are trying to reinforce the truck convoy. We'll see. I, I, you know, I, this is not really about trucking at all. Most Canadian truckers would like to be able to go through across the border unimpeded by these far-right extremists. But yeah, I mean, the fact that Canada has been sort of frozen 
for a couple of weeks has certainly encouraged other folks elsewhere. I think you'll find that other countries respond a little more aggressively. You know, there was an effort by similar types to do this in France, and they faced tear gas pretty quickly. And I'm not calling for tear gas. I'm just calling for them to enforce the laws. What's been very frustrating is that they don't really need to have their emergency act invoked. There's plenty of powers within the province for Doug Ford to suspend the licenses and certificates of those, those truckers who are involved in this, make it really costly for these people to participate. Instead, you know, we have to have this big hammer come down on the federal government with the, the Emergency Act, which is, you know, really concerning because we may be happy about it now for this movement, but we don't really want to see that, you know, be the way we deal with, with this end. And the people who are going to be affected by this, I was watching uh, Stephanie Carvin and Jess Davis. Uh, Stephanie's one of my colleagues. Jess Davis is one of our students at Nipsey. And Jess Davis is an expert on, on sort of terrorist financing. And her discussion of this was really quite alarming in that the federal government can label some people as being, you know, terrorist affiliated, and then banks will avoid these people for life. And so if this happens to some of these occupiers, they're not going to face a penalty for a few months. They may never be able to get a bank account, mortgage, car loan credit card ever again. And I I don't, I'm not happy with these people, but I want to make sure this weapon is used discreetly and carefully. And if the banks react to somebody being identified temporarily as a concern with a lifetime ban, that that's going to be a real challenge down the road. The question I'm asked repeatedly is whether there's a role for the armed forces and will the Canadian military be called in to respond? And I still don't think the military has a role to, to play here to date. There is a strain on law enforcement for sure, but I think I agree with you with the combined resources available at the city level, provincial and federal levels. Those resources have not been exhausted. And I think, you know, also we're seeing, um, you know, no mainstream political support uh, for the trucker convoy anymore and uh, mm. public opinion clearly siding on the side of the authorities. So this latest move creates a bit of unpredictability in terms of not only how the convoy movement is going to, to respond, but it does seem like it's it's overkill. And then, you know, when you um, just, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing, but coming back to the issue of, of the military, sorry, I don't know if you have the CAF, I don't know if you've noticed, but they have made the news anyway. Sure. with allegations that some members of the Canadian military were involved in the Ottawa protest. And this statement that Major General Steve Boivin, the commander of the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, made reminded us of our last conversation on battle rhythm because his statement well, first confirmed that two outgoing members are facing a military investigation over their role in the protest. But he also said that this kind of participation goes against CAF values and ethics because it jeopardizes the apolitical imperative associated with being a CAF member. So it really echoed some of the stuff that you raised during our last episode with regards to the military and its role as it, the protests are going on in, in Ottawa and elsewhere. In terms of the military officers, you know, the, the troops who, who were on their way out, you know, they were already getting kicked out of key forces because they refused to get vaccinated. And so on their way out, I guess they're upset that the mandate's been applied to them. And so they're, you know, giving support to these folks who are ultimately asking for the government of Canada to be overthrown. So these are precisely the military people you don't want in the military. So one of the benefits, if, you, if we can call it that, of the pandemic is it's revealed people who should not be in the military, who should not be police officers, who should not be in various positions of power based on their attitudes towards what Canadian democracy should, you know, supposed to be. 
but it is disturbing. Uh, I, I, it's not threatening civilian control of the military, but it's, it's certainly creating some tensions and some concerns. It does seem to be the case that there's been a lot of friction between the different members of special operations forces lately because there are some who've been very upset about the mandates and there have been some who are very upset about people who are upset about the mandates. So I do think this is going to be an enduring issue for morale and, and for cohesion within the military, given that there are these divides that you know, are not just represented by these one or two or three soldiers, but it's got, it's more than those people. Those just have to be the people who got on TV or got on social media and made it more well known. But we should move on to the other story of the week, which is we're due for a Russian invasion of Ukraine this week. It's been the American prediction. The day is supposed to be Wednesday. So while people listen to our podcast, which is tomorrow to us, but today to them, maybe this may already have happened. On the other hand, the Russians are claiming that they're moving troops away from the border. Who knows if that's happening? What's your late take on the latest news here, Steph? Yeah, it's there's a lot going on this week. It's a very dynamic week because this morning when we woke up, we saw this Russian announcement, so Tuesday morning, of troop withdrawals away from Ukraine's border. Over the weekend, Biden was claiming to have intelligence that Russia was planning an invasion for Wednesday, February 16th. And then from February 10th to the 20th, military drills are taking place in Belarus. And these joint military drills are called Allied Resolve 2022. And then there are the naval drills, which have been described as a blockade in the Black Sea and the Sea of uh, Azov, which affects commercial traffic. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of moving parts right now to the ongoing build-up military drills and exercises. And, And to me, this heightens the risk of miscalculation. If one were looking for a pretext to go to war, there is no shortage of opportunity here. And even though President Zelensky keeps saying not to fall prey to Russian provocations and to keep calm, there are so many different signals coming from all sides. It's, it's difficult to know how this crisis will unfold. But you know, by February 20th, in less than a week, we should really know whether things are escalating or cooling off, because that's the, the planned end to the military exercises with Belarus. But right now, if you look at the map of Ukraine with Russian positions around it, it seems quite menacing, despite the the rhetoric coming out of Moscow about Western hysteria. So we'll see if this is indeed an actual withdrawal that is taking place or if it's just relocating troops. And then we'll also see if, you know, President Zelensky's appeal to calm are heard both externally when it comes to the international partners, because there's a lot of talk of war. And then internally, if he wants to be clear that there's no pretext for escalation on the ground, whether that is on Ukrainian territory or at sea. So there's as much a domestic audience as there is an international one when he appeals for for calm. And then the state of the diplomatic dialogue right now is interesting too. It's German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's turn this time to meet with President Putin in Moscow. So that's happening today, uh, Tuesday. And it'll be interesting to see if he succeeds where Macron failed. And as a new leader, it'll just be interesting to see how Scholz fares in this particular meeting. Another interesting development, but more for a Canadian audience perhaps, is the announcement made this morning, again on Tuesday, February 15th, about Canada finally agreeing to Ukraine's demands for lethal weapons. So DMD has confirmed that $7 million worth of machine guns, pistols, sniper rifles, and ammunition will be sent to Ukraine. So is this the the right decision in in your view? Some might say it's coming 
a bit late. Wonder when this equipment will arrive and, and be ready for use, and certainly not by tomorrow, which is when Biden said an invasion might take place. And it's interesting too, because this equipment might be arriving at a time where the actual Canadian Armed Forces trainers are being relocated to Poland. Anyway, what do you think about this latest Canadian announcement on the provision of lethal weapons? Well, it's really interesting because it was really strange that we were going doing everything else but that. And I thought maybe they were holding that off to be a way for the Canada to escalate its response in the aftermath of an attack. The timing of it right now is kind of strange precisely because, you know, if the, the, the war starts tomorrow, the weapons aren't going to be there in time. On the other hand, if, if Russia doesn't defeat Ukraine in a few days and we're able to fly weapons in while the things get heated, which is another question entirely, then they, they can possibly be helpful. But it, it does seem that they waited a long time. And I, I was kind of suspicious that this was announced at the same press conference as the Emergencies Act. And so this might have been a way for Trudeau to tie the two things together since there's outside support for the occupiers. And by the way, while we were speaking, the chief of, of the Ottawa police resigned. So we'll see what happens next in Ottawa. Anyway, comes to the events in, in Eastern Europe, Canada's policies were never going to move the needle very far. It was partly for domestic consumption or largely for domestic consumption. So will this satisfy audiences that we've done everything we could do? I don't know. It's kind of late. On the other hand, I'm not sure you can ask for anything more than this. We don't have that much more to give. And I don't think anybody who's at all sane is expecting Canada to fight beside the Ukrainians to keep, you know, against the Russians. I think that that's, that's pretty much off the table. What was interesting was that there was an article in today's Washington Post about the war gaming that the Americans have done, that uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, brought together a group of people from across the interagency to game out all the different scenarios. And we're seeing some of the fruits of that right now, that the government, the United States being willing to share lots of intelligence the past week and a half to show how close things are, has been one of the products of the war game, to think about all the different alternatives and to react to try to prevent the worst case scenario from happening. And if the worst case scenario happens, to be prepared for that. Because in 2014, the United States wasn't expecting Russia to snatch Ukraine or hug Ukraine, Crimea. This time around, the, the expectations are a little different because the United States is more prepared and is already doing stuff to try to bring the allies together and to try to deter Russia and then respond if Russia continues to go ahead with this. We really live in dangerous times. I don't think this will lead to World War III, but I, I do fear for the Ukrainians as... Um, Somebody reminded me today on Twitter, in 1990, nobody was imagining a civil war that cost over 100,000 lives in Europe. And then a year later, you saw the outbreak of civil war with uh, Yugoslavia falling apart in Croatia and then Bosnia. Mm. And so is it possible that there'd be large-scale violence between Russia and Ukraine? Yes. Is it imaginable? Yes. Is it possible? Yeah. Is it likely? Mm, maybe. And so we need to be prepared for this, for the reality of, of large-scale bloodshed happening, if not to, tomorrow, then sometime soon. Maybe the, you know, things will retreat and then we'll get past this current flashpoint, but uh, I'm, I'm not very hopeful. And I suppose as uh, international relations scholars, we should also be asking the broader question about how this moment, this diplomatic crisis is going to be shaping conversations about the new NATO strategic concept. I know the EU has its own strategic compass as well in the works. So there have been a lot of talks from colleagues and, and peers about rethinking the European security architecture in the wake of this crisis. And those conversations were 
already underway, and, and at least for NATO in, in the lead up to the, the Madrid summit this summer uh, in late June. But of course, you know, what's going on in, in Ukraine, the crisis is Ukraine is clearly influencing the tone of those discussions in a way that may not have been the case had, it, had they occurred, let's say, last summer. You know, it reminds me that in 2014, Russian behavior towards Crimea killed the last strategic concept or made, you know, made it overcome by events. So, you know, I, I'm sure this new strategic concept will, will definitely have a, a much less hopeful scenario or, or setting for, for uh, its generation. And it's probably to have a lot more, a more clear eyed look at what Russia is doing these days. Mm-hmm. And, and China has taken a stance on this too. So, I'm not sure if you're you're watching the Olympics, watching very little of them this time around, unfortunately, but there was a pre-Olympic summit with Putin and Xi, and they you know, reaffirmed their support for each other's foreign policy. But also what was significant to me is that you know, they both took a common stance on the enlargement of NATO, and they were calling the NATO-Ukraine relationship a Cold War era approach. So it's interesting to see this common front mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, joint press conference between the, the two leaders and uh, that Russia is getting China support not only on, on Ukraine, and we can maybe establish some parallels with you know, China and Taiwan there. Uh, you can definitely see the interest in them working together on, uh, on these declarations. But I was, I was interested to see the specific mention of uh, NATO enlargement and that China was against it officially. Of course they are. I mean, the, the thing about China is that they have their own eyes on Taiwan. And so if Russia can take back its supposed lost territory, well, China has fully tends to engage in its iridentist mission at some point where it brings back its lost territory of Taiwan. So they, China definitely wants to see international law be changed or be denied. So that way countries that have the power to change boundaries can do so. So I'm not surprised that China siding with Russia on this. It's not the position that they're taking that's interesting or surprising is the fact that they're using a joint press conference to do mm-hmm. it. So is this is this statement going to result in some kind of unofficial or official support? So if Russia invades Ukraine and then there are sanctions that are imposed, does that mean that then, then China is going to lend support to Russia to better weather the effects of those sanctions? So it's those implications yeah. and I'm interested. Mm-hmm. So now China has a bit more skin in the game, whereas before, you know, we're finding it rational for Xi to take that stance, but there's no bigger commitment to Russia beyond beyond that. The other maybe well, point let of me, view, I'm yeah. sorry, just to jump in here. I think that China here is in a really interesting position because not only do they support Russia and won't support sanctions against against Russia, right? So sanctions work best if there's a lot of international cooperation. I don't think anybody was factoring China into supporting sanctions against Russia if Russia invaded Ukraine. Now we can you know, take that possibility off the table. But it's also that this makes Russia more indebted to China because it might have to rely on Chinese help to weather the sanctions. Well, that puts Russia in a different position of weakness that, and it, depending on China, is, is something that the Chinese would take advantage of. So if, if this were to play out in that way, Russia is going to be really in a difficult position because yes, they'll be getting sanctioned by the outside by the West, but then they have to depend more on China and China's goodwill. I think this is part of a larger pattern of, of Putin 
you know, take it one step at a time, not taking three steps down the road. Is it better for China to be, for Russia to be dependent on China? Absolutely not. But if he's willing to do that for the, the price of the moment today to get the thing he wants today, then so be it. But I, I think it's a bad move on, on Russia's part for the temporary help they might get from the Chinese. And I wonder if Putin promised not to invade Ukraine during the Olympics, not to create a disruption for Xi's big show. That's another thing, which is, I think, attacking during the conflict, during the Olympics was not very, be a very friendly act to their pals. Mm -hmm. So I, I was kind of waiting for after the Olympics for this thing to happen. And there's more on Ukraine in your interview with Ben Roswell, too. So Ben Roswell is the president and research director of the Kane International Council. And he was previously the ambassador to Venezuela. And he was previously the senior representative of Canada in Kandahar. And that's how I know. And he's been working with CIC to promote democracy within Canada and promote the efforts of democracies to do a better job of protecting democracy around the world. So we speak a little bit about Russia in our interview and the larger challenge that democracies are facing with the rise of authoritarian regimes, with the backsliding we've seen amongst the world's democracies. And at the end, we talk a little bit about Afghanistan, given that he spent you know, a fair amount of his, part of his earlier part of his career on, on that issue and, and spent a goodly amount of time in Kandahar, leading the civilian side of the mission. So that's our interview for today. Enjoy your anniversary, and I will talk to you soon. All right, have a great break. We'd like to welcome Ben Waswell to Battle Rhythm. Ben is a, for, a former ambassador. He was the ROC, which is the representative of Canada in Kandahar, and he is now president of the Canadian International Council. For those who don't know what CIC is, can you just briefly explain what CIC is? Yeah, well, listen, it's wonderful to be on the show. I've been listening to Battle Rhythm for quite a long time. Big fan of your work and the, and the network. I think it does really, uh, it makes a really important contribution to the caliber of the debate on international security in Canada. CIC, I suppose part of that debate as well, but we're, we've, um, our real focus is on citizens. So we're a grassroots organization that offers citizens an insight and hopefully a voice in global affairs. We're based in uh, 19 cities. We're putting the finishing touches on a 20th, but we just opened a 19th branch in Whitehorse, believe it okay. or not. Yeah, so we're in eight provinces and territories. And our bread and butter activity is to educate everyday Canadians about what's happening in the world, lay out why it matters to, to all of us, not just the policy nerds in Ottawa and elsewhere, and look for opportunities for their voices to be heard in the policymaking process. I got to tell you, the CIC events that were in Ottawa before the pandemic, it was very hard to attend them because they were jam-packed. Yeah, uh, that's and, our, and, one of our most important branches, as you know. Yeah, and they had, it was a nice distribution of, of, of younger folks who were interested in the stuff and a lot of older folks who had spent time in, in, in government. And so it was a yeah. really Well, that one's a really big and active branch for obvious reasons, but I think something that's uh, really inspiring to me about the CIC is our activities in places like Thunder Bay and, mm -hmm. and Saskatoon and some, you know, where foreign policy debate is not as active and where citizens don't have that chance to rub shoulders with retired ambassadors mm -hmm. and what the like, because our, I mean, our view is that foreign affairs, that global affairs affects Canadians in their individual lives and their communities as never before. And yet it's, there's this kind of air of mystery about foreign policy that it's somehow beyond the grasp mm -hmm. of everyday people or that it's, you know, you have to have like years and years of experience living abroad before you can even open up your mouth and say anything about it, which I think is like fundamentally undemocratic. Like if this mm -hmm. is, there's questions, there's decisions being made for Canadians to advance their basic, you know, security, health, prosperity, 
then they should be part of the of the the debate, and their their views should be uh, should be heard as well as those of us graybeards that have served for twenty five years in the back in embassies around the world. Oh, well, and that's really important because one of the complaints that we graybeards who do this stuff complain about is that the politicians don't care about foreign policy because the people don't care about foreign policy. And I think the answer is that they, people do, that it's just that it's hard sometimes for them to figure out what's going on and for them to understand where they stand on these issues. And if they can express their interests better, then politicians would be held to account for their foreign policy. And that might make those issues more responsive and more dynamic. So totally speaking agree. of dynamic stuff, you're focus now on global democracy, on efforts to figure out how we can renew democracy and the alliance of democracy. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we have a project underway called Renewing Our Democratic Alliance. And it starts from the observation that I think is quite common across the political spectrum and many countries around the world, that democracy is in trouble, having been the dominant norm for how countries are governed for the last 30 years or so, and well before that, within our half of the world, that democracy is on the retreat. And it's not just in some of the countries that only recently became democracies. It's actually, there's there's a, a, a rot right at the heart of some of the most consolidated, long-standing democracies, notably in the country where you were born. But even so in Canada, I mean, there's certainly major assumptions that we've had about a society, about the role of media, about the, the capacity of citizens to come together and air their differences about the operation of these institutions that are, in, are being questioned as never before. And so... I w- if I had to sum up the work that we're trying to do in mm-hmm. this project, we're trying to reframe the international discussion of democracy, like what happens across national borders when you talk about democracy, some kind of model of export where countries mm-hmm. that have figured it out are exporting their institutions and their practices and their cultures to countries that haven't figured it out yet. That model that I- I'm not sure it actually ever accurately describes. Mm-hmm matters, but it's certainly a a really dangerous illusion right now. We're trying to change that in favor of a dynamic in which all democracies are committed to improving the quality of democracy in their own country and engaging with other democracies to exchange lessons. So it's much more about mutual learning than Mm -hmm. about export. It's a lot more about egalitarianism and reciprocity, recognizing that we're all flawed, but that being flawed doesn't mean you give up. It also means that if your neighbor or your, you know, your important trading partner has some challenges with democracy, you don't, you know, sort of wash your hands and say, I'm glad we're not them, but think like, what, actually, this is really important for us as well as for, for them. So what, what can we do as countries that believe deeply in individual human dignity? And we've been doing this. The um, other thing I think is quite unique about this, instead of working with, say, American or British or other experts on democracy, we're working with Germans. This mm-hmm. is a project that's funded by a major German political foundation. And that has opened up a whole world of insight for us, mm-hmm. given that uh, Germany is really quite a, a unique and mature and resilient uh, democracy, even in the face of some of the, the most pressing challenges in the 2020s. Well, that's a really interesting uh, case to think about because obviously they rose, the, their democracy comes from, from the worst of all possible circumstances where their previous democracy was destroyed. Yeah, leading to a catastrophe, not only for, for the German people, but for everybody in, in Europe. And so the Germans take a bit more seriously these issues. And, and just yesterday or two days ago, there was a, a German member of the Bundestag in their parliament talking uh, about freedom and what it means to be free. And we have this discourse in North America where freedom means being able to do whatever you want. And mm-hmm that's a real problem during a pandemic as we've seen and i I assume that your effort to renew democracy is is about trying to remind people about responsible freedom 
to, and I'm so, given that we're having this conversation the same day that trucks are, are arriving in Ottawa mm -hmm. under the name of freedom, but yeah. is part of a larger anti-democratic process where people are asking to throw away our institutions in the name of being able to do whatever you want. So I'm curious as to, as to this populism that we've seen around the world. I guess you're learning from the Germans and learning from the countries how to, how to, how to grapple with this. So yeah. I'm curious as to, as to where you guys stand on this right now. Well, the one area of really strong conceptual common ground that we're finding between Canadians and Germans and the political traditions of our two countries is the notion of citizenship and the, uh, the focus, the orientation on citizens. I think one of the benefits, the, it's hard to call anything that came out of the Second World War and the Holocaust and Nazism a benefit, but I suppose one of the effects of that mm. horrific experience that Germany went through and led the rest of the world through is a fundamental determination to examine politics and policy from the impact they have on individual people. They sort of shrink back from some of the larger ideological discussions. Nationalism is still kind of taboo in Germany, and that's a sort of a natural place for, for people to go. But there's actually sort of a fundamental, I would argue, there's like a fundamental tension between when public policy is done for the benefit of the nation and when it's done for the benefit of the citizen. Mm. In, in our practice, I mean, in sort of common thought, it seemed to be sort of one and the same that you advance Canada, you advance Canadians. Mm -hmm. But that's not always the case. I mean, let's look at Russia right now invading or getting ready to invade Ukraine. You've got Vladimir Putin saying Russia and Ukraine are one people, mm -hmm. and I represent the interests of that people, deliberately ignoring like what 38 million Ukrainians would actually would actually say. And I, I'm sure he says that about Russians too, like the interest of Russia is not the same as the interest of Russians. Otherwise, they would have a very different <laughs> government. But I think that's also a risk in, in non-German Western democracies. So look mm -hmm. at the United States, the competition. They, there's a, a growing cult of the American nation on the far right of the United mm -hmm. States that is willing to sacrifice democratic rights in order to protect the, the nation. Germany is immune from that because they've seen where that goes and the absolute horror that results. And I like to think Canada's got a um, pragmatic kind of citizen oriented approach as well. Like we've had our brushes with nationalism and of course separatism, Quebec separatism, and that's created a different sensibility here. And that kind of citizen focus, I think, opens up tremendous opportunities for mm -hmm. really pragmatic, helpful solutions. So the one, one issue we've been exchanging a lot of lessons on between Germany and Canada, to give you an example of this, is migration and particularly mm -hmm. the integration of uh, migrants once they come into our into our countries here there's a there's a tremendous amount of quite straightforward beneficial policies that can be adopted once you accept that both countries are going to have migrants mm -hmm. and that migrants can be a tremendous source of benefit for the country as well if you, you put aside the kind of us versus them mm -hmm. dynamics of migration and think about skills that are needed in the in the German economy, the benefits that uh, that we get by incorporating people from so many different uh, perspectives and languages. And so that's where I think the Canadian and German approach to democracy might actually have something to offer more broadly when we're looking at these grand geopolitical mm -hmm. competitions, break it down to the level of what does it mean for everyday citizens? Like what foreign policy should we be pursuing in order for mm -hmm. uh, for the citizens of say Dusseldorf or Calgary to uh, to benefit from changes in the world and be shielded from the from the threats
Well, that's really very interesting. And this is again, at an important time in Canada where today I, I noticed when I was driving around people carrying really big green flags on the back of their pickup trucks. And it speaks to sort of what, what is that symbol now? Is that they're, they're, they're trying to say that they're better Canadians than, than on the big flag on my, on my car, on my Hyundai Elantra. I don't know where they put it. Um, <laughs> there has always been that sort of clash between what is good for the nation and what versus what is good for the individuals within that nation. I do think that Canada has had a, a better record than most on migrants, although we still haven't figured things out for ourselves. I mean, we have a lot of people who could serve in the medical industry in this pandemic yeah. who are mm-hmm. who have qualifications from other countries, but they are not recognized here. Yeah. And so they're driving cabs or, or doing something else, which is perfectly useful, but we could really use these people with medical skills in, in hospitals. I, my brother is currently dating a woman who's a doctor in Lithuania and is not in, and he's most unhappy about that. And mm-hmm. I think we, we would be creating happier citizens who are more productive if we found ways to get around a lot of barriers that we place. We, we let them into the country, but then we don't make it easier for them to thrive. Yeah. And then that make them better citizens all the way around. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's also important for us to expand the number of countries that we're bringing into this conversation about, mm-hmm. about democracy, learning from our own domestic experiences. I do actually agree with the framing that many international relations experts and particularly the United States government has made that there's this uh, geopolitical clash between the democracies of the world and the autocracies. It can be oversimplified and over mm-hmm. and overstated. But I, th- I think it, w- what's at stake now is the norms, mm-hmm. of, you know, the rules, if you want to use the favorite Canadian term, the rules-based international system. And that's where, that's where I think Canada's fundamental national interest comes in, in, uh, into play is uh, uphold those, uh, those rules. The various mechanisms that have been either we're trying to repurpose organizations that have been around for this or create new ones are all fundamentally flawed. And so we're hoping with the, the Germans that we might come up with a new one. So, for example, NATO obviously formed as an alliance of liberal democracies in the late 40s to deal with the authoritarian threat coming from the Soviet Union. But NATO is a very heavily military focused organization. As you know, there's a political dimension to it. It's, it's sort of the, the weak second cousin related to the military component. And of course, NATO now includes some countries that are really quite far from democracy, you know, oh. Turkey, uh, Hungary, and others. There was a community of democracy set up, which is just so broad that it kind of includes everyone and mean, ends up meaning nothing. President Biden has convened a new grouping of states and there's some summit for democracies last uh, December, but again, a little bit too inclusive. <laughs> and the, uh, the Brits have this notion of creating a network for liberty where they will reinforce ties with countries with which they have economic interests and with the wealth that will flow from that, then they'll start promoting human rights and other values. But their, their starting point is working with countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. There's some pretty um, unsuccessful approaches to reorganizing the international system to, to preserve democracy. And I guess uh, our insight is that we should build a new grouping of democracies around countries that are the most resilient democracies, mm-hmm. that are the most open to discussing the quality of their democracies necess- internally mm-hmm. and to exchanging those views. Like if we're, if we're humble enough to say we care and so much about democracy that we're willing to let outsiders teach us uh, what we could do better and learn from them, that's a sign that we're probably onto quite a powerful and effective group of countries that are going to will, be willing to, to work very closely together and to collaborate at a level that I don't think are possible in these other groupings. Well, that, this does raise a challenge, though, because one of the natural tendencies of Canada is to say, well, we're better than the Americans on this. And then the conversation ends. Our, our healthcare system is better than the Americans. 
we're doing better on vaccinations than the Americans. We're doing this better than the Americans. And so given the challenge the United States is going through in its democracy uh, lately, I'm afraid that Canadians might have the, the attitude of, well, we're doing better than the states. And so we're not really going to critically examine ourselves because we don't need to, we're doing fine. As long as, yeah, as, long as we're better than them. <laughs> Which I think is uh, unfortunate for Canadian democracy because yes, there's some serious challenges in the United States, but they, there's some things that, America does far better than Canada when it comes to democracy. I think the, the vitality of American civil society is vastly greater than Canada. Just think about philanthropic giving. It's something like per capita to, uh, to charities and others is something like twice or three times what it is. So organizations, think tanks, NGOs, they're all much better funded in the United States. And so you, you get uh, an ability to operate completely separate from the state or from from the private sector. The other thing that's really inspiring are the social movements in the United States. I mean, when's the last time anyone made a move movie about like a Canadian political movement? I mean, you think of like the, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. You think about Black Lives Matter. You think about the Women's March on Washington, the environmental movement. I mean, those all come out of American civil society. Canadian civil society groups are no, you know, they're no chumps, but there's something dynamic about American democracy that, that I think we must try to emulate mm. um there's a bit too much of a tendency in canada to not only to say we're better than the americans but also to say ah uh, you know all this stuff let's just let the government do it and i can tell you having spent 25 years in government you don't want to turn to the government for <laughs> every improvement in your society like it's got to be done by citizens and so that's why i would love i mean i uh, the united states and particularly u.s civil society organizations needs to be part of this new grouping of uh of democracies that we're hoping to pull together with the Germans and others. I guess one thing to go back to the international rules-based order uh, is that that's a phrase that is uttered by leaders. And you started the conversation by talking about citizens and understand what's in their interest. Can you can you suggest a little bit about what that that external stuff? For instance, if we end up spending far more money on helping Ukraine out because this is sort of the battleground for the rules-based international order. Why should Canadians care about that? What, what is what is it? What do they have at stake uh, besides mm -hmm. just you know we have Ukraine to Canada, they're Ukrainian there. I mean, what is what are the elements of international rules based order that can speak to the to, to Canadians? Uh, yeah, that way they, they might support parties that are more active in supporting or support groups that are active in supporting those those efforts. Well, it comes down to norms, which I know for a non expert audience or a more general audience might be a bit of a wishy-washy concept, but I, my experience of having, having been in many front lines of international relations, I actually think they're quite, quite powerful. Um, you know this already, but I suppose for your listeners, a norm is a, an expectation of behavior that does actually constrain states. It doesn't mean that it's a, a rule or a law that, you know, some a country will be punished if they don't follow. It just means that that's what countries are expected to do. And when they calculate their costs and benefits, there's a lot of costs to breaking an, uh, a norm and a lot of benefits to, to sticking with it. There is no final arbitrary international affairs. And so the countries essentially operate by relying on these long, long established norms. Well, what a really fundamental one is that a country gets to choose who it allies with. It has a freedom of operation, a freedom of maneuver in, in foreign policy and international affairs. And that's really an extension of democracy. I mean, citizens themselves get to choose their government. Their government gets to choose who they get to ally with. The opposite concept, the opposite norm was one that was quite common in the 19th century and the, uh, the first half of the 20th century. And that was fears of influence. 
which essentially means that there's two categories of states. There's great powers, and then there's subservient powers. And the subservient powers belong to a great power by being in their sphere of influence. The great, the great power gets to call all the shots, and the other great powers don't, don't get to uh, operate in the, that subservient country, but also the subservient country has, their, or has their, their hands tied. And that's fundamentally undemocratic way to, to operate. And I think one of the great advances in international relations this, this last three generations is that we've eliminated that concept of spheres of influence. So that's what Russia is trying to reintroduce. They're trying to take this notion from long, long, long ago and say this is how the world should be organized. If they succeed in the Ukraine, um, they will extend their sphere of influence because that's what you do with spheres of influence. You try to get them as, as big as possible. So they've already put a target on the, the backs of all the Eastern European countries that used to be in the Warsaw Pact. But the Warsaw Pact existed, you know, the, the line dividing the Warsaw Pact and the free, the free world, as we called it back then, came about through competition. I mean, it was far as the, the world's democracies were, allow, were willing to allow the autocratic states to extend their reach. Like, which countries were we going to give up on for the application of global norms of, of human rights and democracy? So there's nothing natural about that line between Eastern and West. Like, the, an autocratic state with a desire to constantly accumulate power will just keep pushing and pushing. What's at stake for us is not just the fact that there's 1.4 million Canadians of Ukrainian descent. I find that actually kind of, I, I hear that a lot, but I find it a little offensive, the, the fact that there might be like some ethnic reason why, why we favor Ukraine. We favor Ukraine because it's an important democracy. And, you know, we're, a, we're not a great power, so we don't want to be under some other country's sphere of influence. We want, to, we want to choose who we partner with and how we partner with. If Ukraine loses that, that ability, who says Canada is going to be able to hold on to it? I'm one of those cynical political scientists who've, who've said that there is an element of domestic politics in this, that there is a competition between the politicians in power and out of power to present themselves as the best defender of Ukrainians, partly because they're an important constituency. Yeah, and, and yeah. in the United States, well, the same is true. I don't uh, disagree with that. I just I, I wouldn't say it's the, the primary cause. And I do no. think there's a kind of reductionism, like Christy Freeland, for example, her foreign policy instincts are sometimes questioned because she's a Ukrainian and therefore must always be sort of partial to the Ukrainians, which I find uh, demeaning. And, I, 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 and also, I do think there's something much more serious at stake here than, than votes, which is the norms of the international system. It's a norm that I saw. There's a, a, a battle for norms that I saw front and center when I was uh, ambassador in Venezuela as well, mm -hmm. a country that used to be very, very firmly in the, in the camp of the world's democracies, one of mm -hmm. the most dynamic democracies in Latin America that essentially managed to be taken over by Russian and Chinese influence. And mm -hmm. the reason that Maduro is still in power is certainly not because of the preferences of his own citizens, but because you're seeing that kind of creeping sphere of influence logic take root even here in the, uh, in the hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, the, the political scientists have noted that there was a great expansion of, of democracy over a series of, of, of eras from World War II up until the late 1980s and early 90s with the decline in the Soviet empire. But now uh, we've seen a retrenchment of backsliding over the past 20 years. And for a while there, we thought the backsliding was there, not here. But we've seen it, you know, in Hungary, you know, as, as a leader in this, that, that Viktor Orban uh, usurped a lot of the powers of the legislature and eliminated the ability for his competitors to, to compete seriously for power. Um, and, and that made it a little closer to home, but not very close to home, but you know, over the past several years, Brexit, you know, is that, you know, having a, having a referendum maybe 
democratic in one sense, but not so much in another sense. I've always worried about letting big decisions ride on whether you know you're a 50 percent plus a little bit because a few people were thinking, hey, wouldn't this be cool? If, while they're drunk, they you know side with the wacky people mm-hmm. or whatever you know looking on a razor's edge between order and someone else. And now we have in, in the United States we've had a series of, of elections in a party that that you know believes that the best way to win elections is to make it harder for other people to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't been a problem in Canada because good news is the politicians don't seem to be able to control how people vote or how, how people get to the polls. Canada's made voting access better, but they're on worse. Although it is striking that you know superiority is at the, the tip of a pencil. That, that's how Canada considers itself to be a more advanced in democracy is that we use pencils and a very, very simple ballots, <laughs> which is a very striking kind of thing. Uh, the last election really brought that home for me. It's you know, scribbled by a little pencil. So you're looking at Germany and, and, and the Germans and the Canadians are working together on fostering a better, better democracies amongst themselves and around the world. You've mentioned the United States. Are there other countries that you're thinking to as, as, as the Conrad Adenauer's Foundation's next target for helping build this thing? Because obviously, yeah. you, not, you don't, shouldn't bring the Saudis first or, or UAE, <laughs> China. Yeah. You know, we, we know who the authoritarians are, but what are, but who are the democracies? What, what are the most successful democracies these days that we can emulate? Where can Canada learn from besides Germany? Well, I should say, actually, my criterion for inclusion wouldn't be a judgment of the caliber of the democracies. I mean, you could look at the Freedom House Index or the Economist Index and pick the ones that are in the sort of top 10 percentile, I suppose, if you want to do it in a, like a pure political science way. Um, I would do it by willingness to open up to discussion about domestic um, democratic practices, mm-hmm. uh, the, the fundamental, the basis of activity in this grouping that we're calling the Network for Democratic Solidarity would be about mutual learning. And so... Okay. You know, next time you have a summit with, if I was, you know, President Biden, instead of saying, I'm going to choose whether you're democratic enough, it would be, are you willing for there to be international scrutiny of your voting practices, of your campaign finance laws, of your mm-hmm. um, protections for minorities, religious, um, sexual, gender, you know, other, other um, mm-hmm. vulnerable populations, and then have some kind of mutual audit or mutual, uh, mm-hmm. like a peer review process. And I think the vast majority of countries that are, well, certainly autocracies will cut themselves <laughs> out. Like, I'm not showing up, but I think a lot of the countries that are on the on the fence, the ones that are awkward, like the Turkeys and the Indias and others, like they, that would be, it would, you'd basically make it up to them. Like if you want to join, this is what's involved. We'd love to have you. Uh, we'd also love to, you know, hear your views on our democracy, but then we'll we'll engage in yours. Absolutely fundamental, though, is that we bring in countries that are not in North America or Europe. We have started with Germany because there's this remarkable kind of confluence of where Germany and Canada are historically and politically right now. But we are both countries of the global north. Democracy is thriving in many countries in Asia. Mm-hmm. I think of South Korea, which just succeeded in impeaching and prosecuting a president for corruption, something that has proved to be beyond the ability of the United States. Like in some sense, South Korea is like a stronger democracy right now than, uh, than the US. Um, you do have India, the world's largest democracy, and there are uh, some anti-democratic tendencies in the, in the Modi government. <laughs> There's also this incredible tradition of human rights protection. There's a, federalist, a federal system in place. There's an incredibly vibrant civil society. So India would be great to have in it as well, Japan. But it's not uh, just Asia. I mean, uh, think of uh, 
of, uh, of some democracies in Africa. I'm quite intrigued by South Africa, obviously some serious challenges with corruption recently, but they have been able to switch presidents from a notoriously corrupt one to one who's willing, quite willing to confront uh, corruption and providing the space for the judicial branch to operate and a very brave judicial branch. And there's been really kind of a, a confrontation between the forces of corruption, the forces of accountability in that country. And Latin America, where I had my last uh, posting, obviously, Bank, uh, Venezuela has very definitively left the camp and joined the other camp of being an outright dictatorship. But Chile's going through this fascinating political yeah. experiment right now. They're rewriting their constitution. They have elected a quite left-wing government, and that has uh, some people worried. But they're exploring now whether there'd be new environmental rights incorporated into their constitution. So we might have like a a lot to learn from them. And Brazil. Brazil is uh, entering a year of serious political competition in which they might swing from one end of the, the spectrum to the, uh, to the other. So it's not, it's not pretty. Democracy rarely is. But these are all countries in which there's something interesting going on, something really serious at stake, and I think would be really fascinating to join in a, in a process of mutual learning. Well, so I, I need to switch topics because we're running out of time, but I, I do want to get your set your thoughts on, on what you got, you experienced, what you felt, because you served a fair amount of time in Afghanistan. You were the senior representative of Canada yeah. in Kandahar at a couple of time, and, and it must have been really hard to watch what happened last summer. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested yeah. in hearing your thoughts about what you experienced, what you felt, and, and sort of what do you think about Afghanistan going forward? And what do you think maybe about you know future Canadian interventions going forward? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was, I devoted three years of my career to Afghanistan. There was a year where I was essentially at the cabinet table as a note taker uh, when the prime minister and cabinet were rethinking strategy for Afghanistan after the Manly report. I was then deputy ambassador in Kabul for one year and then representative Canada in Kandahar, Iraq, in the heart of our operation at the height of our military involvement, but also with a huge uh, civilian team. There were 81 uh, civilians on the ground. So making us like larger than the vast majority of embassies around the world. I think we're, we would have been something like the seventh largest embassy in the world if we'd been considered an embassy. So we put our heart and our soul and our bodies into that effort. I mean, uh, not only were the 158 soldiers killed, one diplomat, but four civilians when I was there were injured, one of them very seriously requiring 20 rounds of surgery afterwards. Wow. So the sacrifice was quite widespread. And uh, as a country, we also put everything we had into Afghanistan. We often criticize the government for spreading itself too thin, of virtue signaling, of you know, setting rhetorical goals and then not backing them up. I think Afghanistan is the one great rejoinder to that. Like this was not virtual signaling. This was us putting everything on the line. And I was proud of the effort that we made. I was proud of the, how seriously we took the, mm -hmm. the process. I was proud that for one very clear moment. We were a net contributor to international security. We were the opposite of a free rider when it came to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And it was the right cause. It was mandated by the Security Council. It was, uh, it was to help rebuild after a, an absolutely horrific regime, widely hated by the Afghans. So that, you know, there was a lot that was right about Afghanistan. We ran out of steam, though. Like, we left. In, we left a long time ago. The Afghanistan fell, fell apart in 2021, but like our military... Our combat mission had ended 10 years before. Our military mission had ended seven years before. Mm -hmm. And so I, I understood why the Americans also then wanted to leave because we essentially did the same thing. We can't really blame the United States for not having the same staying power when we, when we weren't there. I was very surprised at how quickly 
it all went. Not Kandahar so much because we were quite conscious of being in an area that was very pro-Taliban at the time. Mm-hmm. Kabul and all those other areas. I feel absolutely hor- horrible for all of our, not just our, I certainly feel horrible for our interpreters and our local employees. They've, they've got quite a lot of press and I think very deservedly so because the nation owes them a tremendous debt of gratitude. But of course we were there to help all Afghans. So I think about all the farmers, all of the the NGO leaders, all the political activists, all the human rights activists that we worked with, even if they had no particular tie to Canada and and the darkness that has descended on them right now. I, um, I do believe Canada did the right thing in going. I believe we had a trial by fire in learning what modern international relations is really about in the hardest places we went to the hardest place and we gave it our all mm-hmm. we failed in that afghanistan's not stable we went to stabilize it and it's the opposite for stable but i guess my greatest fear going forward is that canadians will look at that and think uh let's not do that again like let's not try let's not make an effort let's just mind our own knitting back here because the world is a scary dangerous place and the mm-hmm. less that we have to do with the world the better that's that would be disastrous for us because those problems are going to continue happening and the reverberations of failed states are going to continue to be felt here so my my hope is that we take some pride in the huge effort that we made the sacrifice the contribution we listened to the afghans we're very very grateful for us being there and really regret our leaving and that the next time we get engaged and there there really must be a next time that we plan to do so on a continuous basis without a deadline if we care enough about a country to sacrifice our lives for it, let's make sure we're in for the long haul. That might mean, you know, being careful about which country you choose because you want to be able to stay there for decades if uh, necessary. But the way that the world is going with other democracies in peril, I think we've got to make that show of solidarity and we've got to stick with it next time. Well, I appreciate you talking about this. I know it's not easy that those who, who spent a lot of time in country have you know, this weighs on them quite heavily. So I appreciate taking the time to talk about, to us about, about your experience and what you think about that, as well as your efforts with CIC in, in helping foster a, a better democracy here and elsewhere, because that really is the ultimate fix to, to a lot of these things. So if we could all be democratic, we would fight less with each other. We'd have more productive economies. Our women would be in better positions. Minorities would, would be in better positions. So that way we'd all be able to pursue the lives we want to pursue. And, and that's a challenge that if we want to be free, we need to exercise our freedom in, in, in positive ways. That way everybody yes. can be better off. And that yeah, involves yeah. responsibility, which is which is one of the themes of of the week, I think. So Ben Waswell, thank you for coming on to Battle Rhythm. We'll have you on again because you'll be doing more initiatives with CIC down the road. I think I CIC, CIC is making a very valuable contribution across the Canada to help foster engagement of Canadians with the world and with what Canada is doing in the world. We could definitely use more of that. So thanks again. And it was a pleasure. And uh, just mentioned to your readers, if you're interested in in uh, knowing a little bit more about our project, check out our own podcast, Open Canada Podcast, hosted by me and by Jeremy Kinsman, a long-time ambassador, where we really get uh, into the weeds on some of these issues. That sounds like an excellent recommendation. I'll make sure I add that to the list of uh, Steve's RR segment. Just the Open Canada Podcast. Okay. Yeah. So good luck with that. Thanks again, Ben. All right. Thank you. Take care. For this week's R&R segment, I've got three recommendations. Two are very much related. The first is Raising Dion. Is, it's back on Netflix. It's a second season of a show about a, a young boy who develops superpowers and her, his mother 
is really the protagonist of the show because it's about raising Dion. So it's, it's about her role as a single mom dealing with this superpowered kid. It's it's a lot of fun. It's really well done. So I recommend that. We, my wife and I, binged Reacher, the, the TV series that was on Amazon. It's a much better version of, of this than the Tom Cruise adaptations. The dialogue was a lot of fun. It was it, They kept rooted pretty close to the first Lee Child's Jack Reacher book. It's my third recommendation. The Jack Reacher books, particularly the first 20 or so, are super addictive, fast reads. They're very thick thrillers. They're like 400 pages, but super hard to put down. So I, I highly recommend not just Reacher, the TV show on Amazon, but the Jack Reacher books by Lee Child, particularly that first 20 or so. And uh, that's it for this week. Good luck with everything. And hopefully we will not have a word to discuss next time. Take care. 